Let me welcome those of you that are watching online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also the hangar in Montana. We are so glad that you are joining us today for our study of God's Word. We're continuing with our series on the book of Acts, which is entitled Rooted in Purpose. And today we're going to talk about in praise of problems. Thousands of years ago, Job said, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. As surely as when you stir a campfire, the, flight, the sparks go up instead of down. Job said, we are born to trouble. Anybody want to say amen to that? 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that, you, that you came on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Life is problematic. You wait for everything to fall into place. You, you just hope that you're going to have just a problem-free, not just a day, but even just a problem-free minute. Uh, I remember Irma Bombeck years ago said, it's harder to be happier than your saddest child. Whichever of your children is going through the hardest time at any time, it's hard for your emotions to be above that. It's hard to be happier than your saddest child. And Kimberly and I have a lot of kids, so we're sad all the time, I'm telling you. Uh, six kids, and then we added two daughter-in-laws, and then two son-in-laws, and two grandchildren. So 12 people. And it's hard to be happier than the saddest one of those 12, and add Kimberly and me in, 14 people. It, it, it's hard, because I guarantee you one of them is going through some problem at any given time. Uh, life is problematic uh, for many reasons, and we can identify with the uh, lost dog uh, ad. I've done this many times before. Lost dog, three legs, blind in his left eye, missing his right ear, his tail is broken, recently hit by a truck, answers to the name of Lucky, okay? <laughs> and so we often feel like life is problematic and we are uh, unlucky. Number one, we are living on a fallen planet. We are living on a fallen planet. You see, God was running planet Earth. But then we brought in a consultant by the name of Lucifer. And he told us that with his consulting, he could help us run it way better than God was running it. And look at the mess that we brought on ourselves. Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. Skipping down to verse 17, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Number two, I believe that we're living in the last days. That's why we're gonna see more and more problems as time goes on. Second Timothy chapter three, see if this doesn't sound like what we're going through today. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How many of you have opened up your newspaper or listened to a news broadcast and you see those things going on throughout our world? Why? Because I believe we're living in the last days. Number three, we are living with imperfect people. And number four, they have to live with us, okay? So that makes for problems. Number five, we're targets of the enemy. First Peter 5, verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
In a few minutes, I'm going to give you a chance to open up your heart and follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But let me just give you a warning first. When you decide to follow Christ, some people think, oh, all my problems are going to be gone. And there are some problems that will be gone. I, I agree with that. But oh, there's other problems that will take their place. You become public enemy number one. And that's why Peter said earlier in, 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 in 1 Peter, he said, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. When you decide to follow after Christ, you become a public enemy number one for Satan. We are targets of the enemy. Now, uh, he says that four good things about problems. Four good things about problems. Now, that's the opposite. We tend to think that the goal in life is to have a problem-free life, and, and, and it's a problem if we have multiple problems. But we're looking at examples in the book of Acts this morning about good things that happen about our problems. Now, it's the opposite of what we think. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what we thought was to be the case. Heard a story this past week about a guy goes to his doctor, he's talking to his doctor, and he's worried about his wife, that her hearing is going, and she may need hearing aid. So the doctor said, well, give her a little test. He says, go and uh, get about 40 feet away, and in a normal tone of voice, say something, and see if she hears you. And then just keep going closer and closer until you see how close it gets until she finally hears you, and then you'll kind of know how severe the problem is. So she's cooking dinner in the kitchen. He gets about 40 feet away, and he says, honey, what's for dinner? She doesn't hear him. So he walks about 10 feet further in, 30 feet away. Honey, what's for dinner? She doesn't hear him. Goes 20 feet in. Honey, what's for dinner? Doesn't hear him. 10 feet in. Honey, what's for dinner? Gets right up behind her, says, honey, what's for dinner? She whirls around. She goes, for the fifth time, we're having meatloaf. Okay. Um, (laughs) It was the opposite of what he thought. He's the one that had the bad hearing, not her. And, and, you know, I, I've just been reading this past week in my devotions, in my quiet time, the story of Jacob and Joseph. And this is one of the great stories of all time. I love this story. And there's this one time in the story, in, in verse 36 of Genesis 42, where Jacob just says, everything is against me. And he thinks it is from his perspective. His beloved son Joseph has died. His other beloved son Benjamin is in danger of dying. They're starving to death. They're losing all their income. They're going through a financial reversal and they're about to all starve to death. And so he throws up his hands and he goes, everything is against me. And from his perspective, it is. But this is one of those rare chances where we as the reader of the story get to see things from God's perspective. And we're like, no, 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 no. Jacob, not everything's against you. Believe it or not, everything's for you. Your son Joseph is not dead, he's alive. Your son Benjamin is not in danger. He has the armies of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, to protect him. Uh, you are not broke. Your son is, the, is Bill Gates. Your son is the second wealthiest guy in all the world. Um, you're not going to starve to death. The bounty of Egypt is yours. But he doesn't see it. But we get to see it. We get to pull back the curtain of heaven for just an inch and get a glimpse of what God is up to in his life. And that's what I'm hoping to do for you this morning. I don't believe you're here by accident. I was praying for you this morning, because I know when I look across this room, so many problems we have, so many things that we're worried about. And I'm so glad you came this morning, because I believe I have a word from God for you. 
And I hope to just in some small way pull back just a bit the curtains of heaven so that you can see and maybe your problems are not everything is against me, but actually God may actually be working through those problems to have everything before you. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's ruler of all of Egypt. Jacob was, what's the next word? You tell me. Stunned. If we could see for a moment what God is up to behind our problems, we would be stunned. He did not believe them. We wouldn't believe it. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, The spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. That's what I'm praying, is that for you in some small way, something from God's word will revive your spirit and you won't feel so crushed by your problems where you say everything's against me, but your spirit will revive. And Israel, another name for Jacob, said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Next page of your study outline. James 1 verse 2, consider it, Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The Greek word here for many kinds is pokalakos, from which we get our word polka-dotted. He says you're going to face trouble that is polka-dotted. All kinds of different sizes, all kinds of different shapes, polka-dotted trials. But consider that pure joy. Now what I want you to do is to just for a moment think of the biggest problem in your life right now. What's your biggest problem? Uh, who is your biggest problem? If they're here, point them out on the count of three, okay? And uh, that joke never gets all a uh, hundred times. Uh, th- think of your biggest problem. To make this thing practical, so it's not just some theoretical I- 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 exercise, let's make it practical. Think of that problem, okay? And now let me ask you if any of these four things could be true of that problem. Problems get more people involved in changing their world for Christ. First problem we see is in Acts chapter 6. And I have to laugh because the first problem in the early church was a budget problem. First problem they had was a budget problem. Somebody got the church budget for the first century AD, opened it up, and somebody's ministry was getting more money than their ministry was getting. And that's what they were complaining about. It says in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, you know, many times you get the most problems when the church is growing. That's the time when you get the most problems. When church is growing, like our church is growing, that's sometimes when you get the most problems. The Hellenistic Jews, that is the Jews that spoke Greek among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews, that is the Jews that spoke Aramaic, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you, this is when the first deacons board was formed, who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. Can I just do a sidebar for a moment? This, this passage is actually a little bit painful for me because I want you to know that at heart, I've only been in two churches in, in, in my life, in, in ministry at least, as a pastor, and I was 12 years in a little rural country church in a place called Homer, New York, a little village of 3,500 people surrounded by dairy farms. I was there for 12 years and now 21 years here in Pomona. 
And I am at heart a country, small-town pastor. I mean, I prided myself at that church that I had been in everybody's home in that church. I had been to every farm, every farmer's farm. I had been there to walk with them through the barns and everything like that and out in the fields. I had been in everybody's home. And then that little church uh, grew practically overnight from about 150 people to over 1,000 people in this little town. And, and I couldn't do that anymore. And that was painful for me. And then I came here. And I had been used to doing all the hospital visitation. And I was the one that did, was out there on the front lines. And I remember I came here uh, to a much bigger situation. And, and I walk in here and somebody had to be visited in the hospital. So I got ready to go to the hospital. And a wonderful pastor we had then called Dr. Keith Korstens. He said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to visit the hospital. He says, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. He says, let me go do that. And you devote yourself to the Ministry of the Word and Prayer and the leading this wonderful ministry in church. And I praise God for him. It was kind of like a Jesse counseling Moses kind of moment. And I love that man. And, 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 and he, was the, he said, Glenn, let me coach you on this. He mentored me on this. This is the biblical way of going about doing things. But let me just share with you that it still breaks my heart when the hospital visit is to be done and I'm not the one to go. Um, when the when the one-on-one ministry needs to take place, and I'm not the one that primarily does that, and we have fabulous Pastor Randy Gardner. Don't you love that guy? I mean, just the, and and so many of our other pastors, and and their job is not just to do it themselves, but to mobilize us to do it for the whole church to be involved in ministry, and that's the biblical way of doing it. But can you know? That if it were up to me with infinite time, I'd do every hospital visit, I'd do every wedding, I'd do every funeral. That's the way I'm wired. Uh, but I know that's not the biblical way to do it. And so they turned this over to the ministry within the church so that they could give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Problems get more and people involved in changing their world for Christ. And so uh, that's what we're about at our church, is the pastors equipping the people to do the ministry. I shared with the Rooted kickoff on a Tuesday night that I believe we're in the second great reformation. The first reformation was getting the Bible into the hands of everybody, out of the hands of just the pastor and into the hands of everybody. That was the first great reformation with the creation, the invention of the printing press, and it got the Bible in everybody's hand rather than just the pastor having the Bible. But I believe we're in a second great reformation, which is getting the ministry out of the hands of the pastors and into everybody else. So that all of us together, like shareholders, are together involved in fulfilling God's plan and purpose for our church. Number two, problems push us out of our comfort zone. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus gives the final assignment before he goes to heaven. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then in all Judea and Samaria. And then to the ends of the earth. Now we're eight chapters in to Acts. And where are they still stuck? Jerusalem. They're still hanging out in Jerusalem. He told them, he told them go to Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then to the othermost. And they're still hanging out in Jerusalem. Now can you blame them? Can you imagine how awesome it was to go to church in Jerusalem? I mean the first Sunday of the month would be Peter preaching on forgiveness. And the second Sunday of the month would be John preaching on love. And the third Sunday of the month was a seminar by Thomas on how to overcome doubts in the Christian life. And, and, and it was just like, can you imagine how awesome it was to be at the church of Jerusalem? 
And so who would blame them that they wanted to stay in their comfort zone and just stay there and huddle together and enjoy it? I've done this illustration a million times, but it's like the Super Bowl kickoff and the Seahawks uh, get the opening, get it, and they go back, let's say they run it back to the 25-yard line or so. They go out and they get into their huddle with Russell Wilson, their quarterback, and they huddle and they huddle and they huddle, delay of game, back five yards. Huddle, 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 delay of game, back five yards. This happens three or four times. Now they're on their own goal line. Coach Pete Carroll calls timeout. And he runs out and he says, guys, what's, what's up? And they said, oh, coach, we're having such a great time of fellowship here. We're sharing about our lives and we're reading the playbook together. And we're, some of us have even made songs from the playbook and we're, we're singing them. And, and coach Pete Carroll said, you guys are crazy. The point of the huddle is to eventually get out and play the game. And they were huddled in Jerusalem. And so God needed to do something to get them out of their comfort zone. And that something was a terrible, terrible thing. It was a problem. It says in verse one of chapter eight, on that day, what day? The day that a wonderful young Christian leader in the church named Stephen was stoned to death. How heartbreaking that must have been for being a follower of Jesus. Can you imagine if Pastor Brian or Pastor Eric or or Pastor Tomiko or one of our young, wonderful pastors got killed for the faith? How heartbroken we would be. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Another problem came up by the name of Saul or Paul. It says in verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church. So you lose a beloved young leader in your church, is killed, And then a crazy young guy by the name of Saul takes his place, and his goal is to destroy the church. But look at what happens in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They start fulfilling Acts 1, verse 8. They got out of the huddle in Jerusalem, and they start telling the story of Jesus wherever they went. And it all started with a terrible tragedy, the killing, the execution of Stephen for being a follower of Jesus. In 1939, four-year-old Mary Beth Lane would stand by the mailbox every afternoon and wait for her older sister to arrive home on the bus. However, on this particular day, a young teenager was traveling along that road in his parents' car, and he failed to notice little Mary Beth, who had been hidden by some bushes. Tragically, as his car approached the mailbox, Mary Beth suddenly, without looking, decided to go back across the road. As she darted onto the roadway, she was hit by the teenager's car and killed instantly. In dealing with the grief of that teenager, Pastor Lloyd T. Anderson, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Salem, Oregon, led that young man, the driver of that car, to Christ. His name was Mark Hatfield. Back in the early 40s, Mark Hatfield attended Willamette University, where he majored in politics. When he graduated, he taught at the college for a few years and became the dean of the university. Then he ran for and won the position of Oregon Secretary of State. He was then elected as governor and served for two terms and then served for 24 years in the United States Senate. During the time he was governor, Mark Hatfield taught the large adult Sunday school class at the First Baptist Church of Salem. It was during those years that he also discipled a young man by the name of Doug Coe. 
After Senator Hatfield was elected to Congress and moved to Washington, D.C., he encouraged and sponsored Doug Coe to come to the city and start prayer breakfast with members of Congress and the White House staff. It was during the time of the Nixon administration and in the middle of the Watergate scandal, President Nixon's chief of staff, Charles Colson, accepted Christ as a savior. If you've read Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, you'll recognize it was Doug Coe who made the turning point in Chuck Colson's life. Of course, almost everyone has heard how Chuck Colson, through his prison ministry, is leading thousands to Christ. So through the senseless tragedy of the death of a little four-year-old girl, this was the picture that God must have seen back in 1939 from the accidental death of the little four-year-old girl to a worldwide ministry, even though we don't understand it, God still holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He uses problems. Not all things are good, but he can take even things that are not good and work them together for our good. Uh, Someone has said that life's greatest addiction is our comfort zone. Our greatest addiction is our comfort zone. It's been said that we don't change very often when we see the light. We change when we feel the heat. And boy, I can identify with that. I love my comfort zone. I love my ruts. I live in them as long as I can. And, I, and, and sometimes I don't change when I see the light. I change when I feel the heat because my greatest addiction is to my comfort zone. Number three, problems reveal what we're really made of. James 1, verse 12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, Paul is raising money across the Roman Empire for the famine-stricken church back in Israel, back in Jerusalem. And he writes about the Macedonian church. And the Macedonia, what is today Greece, was one of the poorer parts of the Roman Empire. Corinth was one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire. Macedonia, what is today Greece, was one of the poorer areas. And he writes about the church in Macedonia. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And so he's kind of laying a guilt trip on the Corinthians, saying, you guys are so wealthy And look at how generously the Macedonian church gave, even though they have very little to give. Reminds me of a statistic I saw a number of years back uh, about Massachusetts. Massachusetts that year, number one per capita income in the United States. Wealthiest uh, per capita income of any other state. They were also number one in that category. They were number 50. They were dead last in per capita charitable giving. They were the wealthiest in the country, and yet they get, and I'm not talking percentages, I'm talking actual money. Number one in income, number 50, last in the country in per capita charitable giving. You compare that to that same year, Mississippi. State of Mississippi was number one in the country, um, uh, for, or number, number 50, the last in the country for per capita income. Had the poorest state in all the country. They were number one in charitable giving. They had the least and yet they gave the most. Massachusetts had the most, and yet they 
they gave the least. Now, there are theories on that. One of them is, is that there are more Baptists in Mississippi than there are people. Did you know, did you know that's literally true? That's literally true? They actually did. You know how church membership roles, you know, don't get thinned down sometimes, and we just lopped off a bunch off of ours that, you know, to make it more realistic. And, and so uh, sometimes those things swell. And they literally took the membership of Baptist churches in Mississippi, and it was more than the population of the state of Mississippi. But they said it's that emphasis on Baptist tithing the tithing of Baptist churches. That's probably what explains it. But there's something else that I think explains it. Is that the harder times you go through, the more sensitive you are to other people who are going through hard times. You know, the more your extreme poverty, the more it wells up like it did for the Macedonian church in rich generosity, the more sensitive we become through problems. Problems make us sensitive to other people who have problems. Matthew 7, Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Uh, My friend Tom Mercer said, life will eventually present a set of circumstances that will expose us for who we really are. I got a couple of mugs over here. They look identical from the outside. And you look at them from the outside, and they look exactly the same. But when we come under pressure, when we face problems, when we go through a hard time, when we get knocked over, you'll find that one of them has honey inside and the other has vinegar. And so it's trouble that reveals what's inside of us. That's how God can deal with us. Gene Scarborough is going to love me for the mess I'm making up here. He's going to clean it up. But some of us, when we get tipped over, we spill vinegar. And some of us, when we get tipped over, we spill honey and once we, that is revealed, then God can begin to work in us to make us more and more like the character of Christ, more and more in the image of his son. And then number four, problems provide an opportunity to display God's work in our lives. Problems provide an opportunity for God to be glorified and to display his work in our lives. Sometimes problems, rather than leading to disaster can actually be our finest hour and God's finest hour within our lives. Blind man was brought to Jesus in John chapter 9. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I read a book this past week by a father with a special needs child. And he said for the first years when, of their struggle with this situation, he'd cry out to God and he'd say, who sinned? Did I sin? Did my wife sin? Who sinned that we have this problem? And he said these 14 words changed his life. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And maybe the problem you're facing this morning happened so that the works of God might be displayed in you. I remember when I was a kid, I saw an old black and white Superman episode. And Clark Kent, he was Clark Kent with his newspaper colleagues, and they, were, they got abandoned on this island with this tribe that was going to kill them because the, the eye of their idol, which was a diamond, was missing. And they accused them of, of stealing it, so they were going to kill them. And so one of the scientists in the group picked up a hunk of coal, and he said, 
You take this hunk of coal and you put it under a million tons of pressure for a million years and you get a diamond. And they're like, well, thank you for that insight. That's not going to help us. They walk away. Clark Kent is by himself and he looks at the hunk of coal, looks both ways. Nobody's looking. He squeezes it and there's a diamond. Put it in the idol, save their lives. Uh, Somebody once said the only difference between a hunk of coal and a diamond is that the diamond has been on the job longer. And, and that's what God is doing in your life through that problem. He is making a diamond out of a hunk of coal. You see, later on there, Ananias was supposed to go share Jesus with Paul. And he said, I'm not going to do that. He's killing all the Christians. And if you look down in verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I'm going to take this hunk of coal, and I'm going to make it into a diamond. Uh, Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Where did this diamond come from? All we knew was coal. Paul writes about it later in Galatians 1. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. I want to give you a chance right now to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Because there's a verse that we love, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good. And I've heard people quote that even if they're not followers of Jesus. Well, you know what? It's all going to work out for good. That's not true. That's the promise, but it only happens if you do the premise, which is for those that, are, that love God and that are called according to his purpose. All things do not work together for good unless Jesus is in your heart and in your life. Then you can claim the promise. I want you to claim that promise right here, right now, to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord so that you can claim the promise. Uh, If you say, I love God, and I want to be called according to God's purpose, then you can claim the promise, and we know that all things work together for good. If you look in the upper uh, left-hand corner of the next page of your study outline, it says how to become a follower of Jesus. You admit your condition before God and ask for forgiveness for the wrongdoing in our lives. And then we believe that Jesus is God's solution to that condition. And then see, we choose to follow Christ as our Savior and Lord. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anybody hears my voice, as you're hearing his voice through his word this morning and opens the door of your heart, I will come in and I will fellowship with him and live in his heart, the two of you in relationship with each other. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. If you're watching in Idaho, if you're watching in Montana, if you're online, or if you're here in Pomona, I invite you to pray this prayer silently as I pray it out loud. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was and proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally.
Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and forgiving all my sins. Right here, right now, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to give you a free gift. There's a, on the south side of the lobby, a, there's a guest center on the north side of the lobby. It's a little packet. And if you want to talk to somebody, you can talk to somebody. Um, uh, if you want prayer for anything, the prayer room is going to be open when we finish the service. Uh, we've still got a little bit longer to go. A couple of things I want to do before we close off. But uh, if you would like prayer for anything, the prayer room is there if you want to talk to somebody. But if you just want to pick up that material that will help you in your walk with Jesus, if you prayed that prayer, we would love uh, to give you that gift. Now problems, another benefit they have of driving us to Jesus. My guess would be is if I were to ask anybody here how you came to Christ, most people would say it's because they were going through a problem or a difficulty within their lives, particularly if you came to Christ as an adult.